Good morning. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Do please sit down. When I read this psalm and its parallel, Psalm 53, I find it easy to think of all the people I know who do not believe in God and imagine their response to it. I doubt they would appreciate being called fools. And to be honest, not many of them strike me as particularly intellectually challenged. I think they might even be deeply offended at being characterized as especially evil simply by virtue of their lack of belief in God. And to be frank, many of them seem quite moral. I am sure I am not alone here in having friends or family members who do not believe in God. Perhaps you have found those among your acquaintances who are atheists to be particularly malevolent. But even if so, I suspect that no more than some people who make the news who claim to be following God. This psalm appears to give atheists a bad rap 
It tarnishes their reputation. It caricatures them like some talk radio shock jock might their political opponent. I can't help but wonder whether the author of the psalm knew any atheists in Israel or whether this lament is a sort of pious knee-jerk reflex to impiety. Well, that sort of response to this psalm is certainly understandable, especially now when atheism is being given a renewed hearing in our culture. But to think that this song is demonizing atheists is actually to completely miss the point. To begin with, the psalm is not saying that atheists are bad and the rest of us are good. His point is that we are all bad. There is no one righteous, not even one. As Paul also puts it when he quotes from this psalm to give biblical authority to his view that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. It is not the religious who are good and the atheists who are bad. No. The psalm is saying that atheism is a subspecies, an extreme one perhaps, but a subspecies of the genus, the common tendency of us all to live in rebellion against God. Now, that's the first thing that needs to be noticed to give this song a fair hearing and not immediately switch over to a different tune on our iTunes channel. It is surely no more accurate to say that atheism is the cause of all the problems in the world than to say that religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. For every crusade and inquisition, you have a Stalin and a Pol Pot. And so as tidy as it might be to confine the human race into categories of the good guys on one side and the bad guys on the other, it's clearly nonsense. Stalin sent millions to gulags. Hitler sent millions to the gas chambers. Pol Pot sent millions to the killing fields. Atheism, with its recent claim to occupy the high moral ground, is a little short on memory. It was only a few years ago that Alexander Solzhenitsyn was coming to Harvard telling the West about the horrors of communist repression. You may say, as an atheist, that that sort of behavior does not represent true atheism, and you may have a point. But then you have to grant the same liberty for Christians 
to distance themselves from the horrible mistakes of the Crusades and various forms of state-sponsored religious victimization. I personally feel that it is clear historically that the Crusades can only really be understood as a natural byproduct of the mistaken attempt to marry the Christian church to a governmental power. But at any rate, the horrors of history and contemporary news no more give us liberty to blame someone other than ourselves. That's the psalm's point, and Paul's point, when he quotes from it, the Bible's point. We are all naturally wired for self-destruction. And try to blame other people for our own issues. You know how it went. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the snake. And the snake didn't have a leg left to stand on. So we need to clear that ground away. And admit that neither religion nor atheism is the cause of all the problems in the world. As G.K. Chesterton said in a letter to the Times, what are the causes of the problems in the world? I am. That is not to say that what we believe does not have consequences for our behavior, for it surely does, or that it does not matter then what we believe, for of course it does. And in fact, when we can really listen to what this psalm is telling us about those who say there is no God, we find that it is most profound. You see, what it is telling us is that the idea that God does not exist is only sustainable as a constant internal language. Not believing in God is not easy, the psalm seems to feel. To not believe in God, you have to tell yourself this over and over again, repeatedly. It is not something you said once and then were done with. It is something you have to tell yourself to reassure yourself, to battle against the alternative tendency. Now, you see, we all have an internal dialogue with ourselves going on most of the time. If you listen carefully now, you can hear yourself saying things like, that makes sense, or I want to hear more about that, or I wonder what's coming next. And talking to yourself in this way is not really a sign of madness, unless you hear yourself answer back, I suppose. In the sense of this internal dialogue, there is a language of the heart 
Sometimes it is negative. Some people tell themselves over and over again, you'll never amount to much. Sometimes it is cheerily, even naively optimistic. Anything is possible for me if I set my mind on it. Now, you see, this internal dialogue is a powerful tool, which is why pop psychology tends to try and get us to stop saying bad things about ourselves and start sending positive messages. You know, the kind of thing that we're advised these days. Uh, Every day I'm getting better and better in every way and and all that. Of course, the trouble with such rather ham-fisted attempts to change how we feel is that they are working against internal gravity. The really interesting thing is to listen to what you are saying to yourself. Your internal dialogue, without any tiresome meddling from daytime TV psychology. What is truly going on? The psalm says that at root... When we listen carefully, instead of repeating something over and over again, when we listen, the language of our created heart reflects an accountability to the Creator. We feel that we are made for something, even someone. We feel we are responsible for our actions, that what we do matters. Now, that's why it's too easy to say that all atheists do this, that, or the other. We're we're talking about human nature for everyone. We feel that there is a higher power or a destiny or providence or a judgment to come. We feel guilt when we mess up. We, in other words, have a conscience. So the psalmist is describing how hard it is to ignore that. You have to say to yourself, No, God. No, God. No, God. That's why there is a connection between that behavior and immorality. As he does suggest here too, the person is trying to avoid the accountability of his actions. As he goes about feeling the weight of guilt, he he buries it with the spade and shovel of saying over and over again, no God, no God. Well, of course, if that is the case, such internal denial is eminently foolish. The fool in the Bible is not someone who is unintelligent. You can be a very clever fool 
and you can be not very clever and live very wisely. The fool is someone who is living life in a way that does not accord with reality. And when we look at it like that, you might even think there was a particular danger for people who are rather overly intelligent. In Cambridge and Yale, you would sometimes come across people who were so bright they could hardly walk. It is easy, if you're like that, to get lost in the sheer power of your own thoughts. And so your own particular version of there is no God might be extremely clever. It might have the perfect axiom, inescapably clear deductions, and be based on irrefutable, to your mind, first principles of epistemology. Your internal dialogue might be a PhD level internal dialogue that moves away from biblical moorings in order to impress your superiors and get that key promotion. No one who is appointed a professor these days believes this stuff literally, you may be saying. Or it might be a drug dealer level internal dialogue that shuts down the sense of accountability and conscience so that you don't have to worry about the effects of your behavior upon the unborn children of the crackhead woman. Well, no matter, it is the same sort of thing. Sophisticated or not, you are actually having to work very hard to deny Reality. Now, I'm not saying that Christians do not consciously shore up their faith. Of course we do. We, we come to services like this. We encourage each other to study the Bible, to develop a Christian worldview, to pray and read sound Christian books. But there is a difference It is the difference in the stillness. A Christian cannot escape from his faith. Faith is not a fragile flower that must be watered and tended with kid gloves. It is a hardy oak that can stand the test of a storm. You cannot truly walk away from Jesus once you've met him. You might wish to from time to time, especially when difficult things happen. As the essayist Hazlitt said, The smallest pain in my little finger generates more mental concern in me than the destruction of thousands of my fellow men. And yes, when something truly devastating happens to us, we can doubt God. But doubt is very different from atheism. Doubt is really a form of faith. For you cannot doubt that which you do not believe in. 
I can doubt my friend, but I cannot doubt someone I have never met. And when you meet Jesus, everything changes. He grants faith as a gift from God that is held in His hands, not ours, out of whose hands no man can snatch us. Perhaps that's why Tennyson said, there is more faith in honest doubts than half the creeds. Yes, we all doubt from time to time. We all wrestle particularly at certain seasons of our life. It would be dishonest and disingenuous to deny. But no mature Christian, when he is being frank, would deny it. Yes, there are questions that are bigger than our minds. There are answers that are beyond our brains to grasp. For we believe in a God who is bigger than human intelligence. And so we find that we cannot give up on God even when we try. Even in our darkest moment when we say, surely there is no God internally, we find the next moment that he is lifting us up in his arms and cradling us through the abyss. Whereas the fool, the fool is one who rests not in God, but in their denials. He says there is no God and lives there with his denials, not realizing that the very fact that he has to spend so much energy denying what his heart tells him should really show him that he is denying the obvious. Now, I know the sophisticated intellectual atheists would look at me like I'm an idiot when I say that. Surely, they would reply, hasn't modern science proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that God does not exist? But you see, it is that shadow of a doubt that is so interesting. And the necessity of proving it, which is another interesting thing. I can certainly come back with the various traditional arguments for the existence of God. The, the five arguments that the medieval theologian Aquinas developed. The ontological argument that Anselm championed and was given new life by Edwards and has been discussed again recently. I can do all that. I could, I could talk about the evidence for the resurrection with the living witnesses who knew whether what they were saying was true or not and were willing to die for it. And I can ask who would die for a lie? But when I actually listen to the hard-nosed atheists, the man who does not simply say, in doubt, surely there is no God, but who says to himself in denial over and over again, no, God, no, God. 
When I listen, what I hear is someone who, to use Shakespeare's familiar phrase, seems to me that he doth protest too much. There is a defensiveness to it. For we all know that just about everyone everywhere at all time has believed in God. This is irrefutable. An atheist may say that that is simply a result of the lack of education around the globe and that lots of people around the world still believe that diseases are spread by occult forces, not by microbes, and that doesn't make that true. But even in the educated world, even among the elite, most people I have come across have some sense of God when they are honest, some sense of the numinous, some sense of, well, dread at times. That is what makes this psalm so compelling. It not only describes the source of God denial in the human heart, it also describes the results which seem to be so relevant today. Those who say there is no God have a tendency, by no means all of them, but it produces a tendency to turn against those who believe. They eat up my people as they eat bread. They make despising Christians and scorning faith common currency, an everyday thing of no more unusual occurrence than eating a slice of bread for breakfast or having a sandwich for lunch. Once atheism begins and takes root in a culture, Typically, it gradually tends to develop into a sort of militancy against those who believe. The protesting too much becomes defensiveness, and the insecurity grows into oppression. People who believe are prevented from getting jobs in the highest levels of government or the media. People who believe are shunned as being stupid. People who believe are treated as simpletons. They are laughed at. You know, there are two forms of laughter. There is the good-humored laughter of friends sharing a joke, which I personally rather enjoy. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who was asked whether he would stop smoking if he began to smoke too much. And of course he said, yes, I'll, I'll stop if I begin to smoke too much. Perhaps it was a Q&A session like we're going to have tonight at the evening service. I don't know. And the person said to him, well, what would be too much? And Spurgeon replied, too much would be smoking two cigars at the same time. This sort of good-natured humor can sometimes expose a real matter that requires further thought. Uh, Jesus may well have 
specialized in this and used it, this kind of humor, when he, for instance, described a rich man getting into heaven, holding on to his riches as he goes, as being like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. I can imagine him telling that story in a way that would have got the crowds laughing at the strange impossibility of squeezing a camel through a tiny needle hole, if you take that interpretation of the passage, with the camel with its bony knees and funny face. There are just few things funnier than a camel. Maybe a chimpanzee, you might say, but they didn't seem to have them to hand. But then there is the vicious form of humor. This kind of humor is a bit like a football team psyching themselves up for conflict, for battle. Culturally, it is not yet permissible to attack Christians here. It is acceptable in some places in the West to bar Christians from publicly practicing their faith. A woman who is a nurse may not be allowed to wear a cross to work. A Christian school may not be allowed to only employ Christians, as if a political party has to be forced to employ people of a different political persuasion. What is downright pleasing to many people already is to laugh at Christians. In England, where I am from, Christians are usually portrayed as wet, as wimps. The English vicar is portrayed normally as so nice that he would, as it were, give a cup of tea to Bin Laden. And so incompetent, he would stumble over his robes on the way to the pulpit. Churches are depicted as full of old people, looking rather senile, singing songs flat and off-key and completely out of touch with reality. They never show pictures of the many thriving churches that teach the Bible in London, Cambridge, Oxford or elsewhere. In America, of course, the caricature that is used is different. Christians here are depicted sometimes as aggressive. One step away from burning books and putting on Ku Klux Klan outfits. Like militia groups holed up in the hills surrounded by assault rifles and King James Bibles. Handling snakes and manipulating children. The aim of all this is to prepare the way not just to exclude, but to devour, to destroy, to consume like bread. I remember with great fondness the bravery of one young Christian woman at a secular university whose professor read out her answers to a questionnaire in front of the whole class of a hundred or so and said, all right, who's the Christian? And all hundred laughed and laughed and laughed, and she raised her hand. It's the laughter that scared me. Next come the knives in the night. 
But all this is really to do with fear. They are in great terror. They fear a great fear. There is a noumenal aspect to this behavior, not simply an insecurity or defensiveness, a, a fear. For the righteous person carries with them Christ. And without saying anything, they therefore carry with them sometimes conviction. And the man or woman who says there is no God does not thank us for reminding them that there clearly is. But we have nothing to fear. We do not take revenge. We know that we too are not righteous. And that the history of the church has little to boast about in this regard. But we do know that God is and that by faith we are. We have a confidence in our destiny. Yeah, the church at large may cravenly bow before the Nazis. But there is always a Bonhoeffer or two who is willing to take a stand for the sake of Christ knowing that the Lord is his refuge. Our response is not vengeance, is not terror. It is not aggression, it is not manipulation, it is not ridicule. It is love. It is peace. It is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And most of all, in this context, the psalmist shows us, it is prayer. Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So, my friends, when you next hear of someone denying the existence of God, follow the example of the psalmist and pray for them. You know now their situation. They are living with an internal dialogue that is denying the reality of God. It is a constant language of their heart. We have all done wrong. But they have given in to a particular kind of rebellion, a heart rebellion to deny God. This denial can in time lead to an opposition to God's people because there is still, whatever is said externally or internally, there is still a consciousness of the coming divine encounter which can be denied it may in God's goodness be delayed that we can come and believe. But it cannot be avoided. So let us bow and follow the psalmist's counsel and pray.
Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Father, there is indeed no one righteous, not even one. Help us this morning to be honest about that and seek from you fresh righteousness that this week we may stand in confidence knowing that by faith we are right with you. And so to live in that place of freedom of relationship with you and ongoing discipleship. Father, help us to not live in denial. To not say over and over again, no, God, no, God. But to replace the single word no with yes. Yes, God. To realize that even the attempt at denying him shows that we are wrestling with our divine lover calling out to us, longing to embrace us and lead us home to a place of rejoicing and gladness. Help us, Father, to say yes to you this morning. Father, we pray for well-known and prominent atheists that you would bring them to salvation and give them liberty of heart to say yes to you. Father, we pray for our family members and friends who are saying no to you, that you would do the same to them and help them to say yes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.